Shalom Aleichem, and welcome back to Sefer Maccabim. Last time, we learned how Demetrius overthrew Lysias and Antiochus V to become the new Seleucid ruler, how he appointed Alchemist as the new Kohengadol, how General Nicanor showed Yehuda HaMaccabee mutual respect, but then turned on him and threatened to destroy the Beit HaMikdash, and all about Yehuda's miraculous victory against him, assisted by Jews from the surrounding villages. Now we zoom out a little to focus on what was going on throughout the rest of the world, while we, the Jews, were busy fighting the Greeks. Before we begin speaking about that, however, we're going to mention something related by Josephus that happens following the Jewish victory over Nicanor, but which isn't mentioned by the Book of Maccabees until the following chapter, chapter 9. Alchemus, the moderately Hellenized Kohen Gadal, commands that the wall around the Beit HaMikdash, which had been in place since the second Beit HaMikdash was built in the time of Ezra, be pulled down. Why he makes this command is unclear, but we do know that many ancient prophecies, many ancient Nevoat, from Israel's earlier Nevi'im, were hung on the wall of the second Beit HaMikdash. And it's possible that after Nicanor's defeat, Alchemist fears the Seleucids might remove him from the post of Kohen Gadol, and he feels that by destroying this wall and having the prophecies removed, Demetrius will see him as more loyal and allow him to retain his post. But as soon as Alchemist even starts to pull down the wall, Hashem spites him with a stroke which completely paralyzes him, leaving him unable to move or speak. Alchemist suffers from this stroke for many days. After having been at his position for four years, Alchemist dies very painfully. When Bnei Israel see that he's dead, they appoint Yehuda HaMakabi as the new Kohen Gadol. Since the Kohen Gadol is also the political leader of the people, as well as the spiritual leader, Yehuda is now in charge of diplomatic relationships with other countries and or empires. And he makes a decision which is going to have ramifications across much of Jewish history. We've already mentioned the Romans throughout this podcast. And since this chapter talks about them in great detail, we'll take a moment to give the Romans a brief introduction. Firstly, according to Wikipedia, the origins of Rome date back to around the year 3000 since creation, around 70 years after the construction of the first Beit HaMikdash. The origin of the city of Rome is rooted in a famous legend. A virgin named Rhea Silvia, on the banks of the Tiber River, found herself pregnant by the god Mars, and she gave birth to twins named Romulus and Remus. These twins went on to establish the city of Rome on seven hills overlooking the Tiber. The history of the city, and later the empire, can be divided into several eras. Firstly, the Kingdom of Rome, when the city was ruled by a monarchy, which lasted almost 250 years. After the seventh king, Tarquinius, the people overthrew the monarchy and established a government to rule them, ushering in the era of the Roman Republic, which lasted a further 482 years, during which the people were governed by the Senate, a group of 320 Roman aristocrats who oversee civil and military affairs. This system finally collapsed in the year 3733 or 27 BCE, when the Senate granted unprecedented powers to Octavian, the rival of Mark Antony, effectively rendering him an emperor. This gives rise to the Roman Empire. So we have the Roman Kingdom, the Roman Republic, and the Roman Empire. The empire would last well beyond the destruction of the Second Beit HaMikdash in 68 CE. It would survive until the year 395 CE, when it would split into the Eastern and Western Roman Empire. The Western Empire would disintegrate within the next hundred years, but the Eastern Empire would last another thousand years. Now, our sages teach that while Greece, Yavan, descends from Noah's son Yafet, who was given the lands of Europe, Rome is identified as Edom who is descended from Esav. But Esav, as we all know, is the sworn enemy of Yaakov. 
Going way back to Parashat Toldot, when our forefather Yitzchak blesses Esav, he promises him, when Yaakov's descendants transgress the Torah, only then shall your descendants rule over his. There are some very fascinating Midrashim, which tell us how the glory of Rome is actually dependent on the sins of B'nai Israel. Italy, the country where Rome is located, is divided into two parts, Upper and Lower Italy. Upper Italy, however, never actually used to exist. Lower Italy was originally an island in the sea. But when Shlomo HaMelech sinned by marrying Para's daughter, or according to Rashi, when Menashe Melech Yehuda sinned by placing an idol in the Bitter Migdash, the angel Michael flies down and places a large tube in the sea. Over time, this tube becomes covered with layers and layers of mud and eventually developed into the landmass known as Upper Italy, the land bridge between Lower Italy and mainland Europe. Then, when Yeravon ben Nevat, king of the Northern Kingdom, establishes two golden calves in Bet El and Dan, the twins, Romulus and Remus, are born. Furthermore, when Eliyahu Hanavi was recalled to heaven in a whirlwind due to the further sins of Bnei Israel, Rome expands its power and glory. As a result, we have the Roman Empire in all her splendour, who endures only because we, Bnei Israel, stubbornly persist in serving false gods and are not returning to serve Hashem with all our hearts and soul. At the time of the Maccabean Revolt, Rome has already established itself as a world superpower, surpassing the three Greek empires in strength and wealth. However, the Roman Republic has not yet been replaced by the Roman Empire, and it's still being governed by the Senate. Chapter 8 begins as follows. And Yehuda heard of the fame of the Romans, that they were mighty men of valour, and would extend a hand to all who sought them, and seal a covenant with those who sought peace with them. The first half of the chapter is devoted to a flattering description of the Roman Empire, describing the many military conquests made by Rome, including how they won the mines of gold and silver in far-off Spain, how they captured Antiochus king of Asia, who came at them with an army and 120 elephants, how they crushed all nations who rose up against them, but maintained good relations with their friends and allies, how all who heard their name were afraid of them, but still they managed to maintain a stable government. For better or worse, Yehudah Maccabee decides the Romans would make good allies in their fight against the Syrian Greeks, so he sends two Jewish messengers named Eupolemus and Jason. He sends them to Rome to meet with the Senate and negotiate an alliance with them and to request help with fighting the Seleucids. So the two Jewish ambassadors embark on the journey to Rome, which back in the days when they didn't have Elal was a very long journey. Finally, they arrive in the great city of Rome, stand before the Senate and deliver the following words. Yehudah Maccabee and his brothers and the Jewish people have sent us to you to establish a covenant of peace with you. Now please write down a recording in your books that we shall be your confederates and friends. Now the Romans, upon hearing this, are extremely pleased. Here are the messengers of Yehudah HaMakkabi and his fierce and Jewish army, whose fame has spread across the whole world, extending their hands towards them to request an alliance. Of course, the Romans agree immediately and seal a treaty between them. They inscribe the terms of their treaty in tablets of brass, which they send back to Judea with the messengers. The terms of the treaty run something like this. If any nation makes war with us, you shall fight alongside us wholeheartedly, and you shall not provide any supplies for the nation attacking us. If you are attacked, we will do the same for you. If either one of us wishes to add or subtract to this agreement, they may do so. And the Romans also send a message to Demetrius, effectively telling him, These Jews are our friends now. If they complain about you any longer, we're going to let you have it. 
To me, this whole situation seems comparable to a high school playground where you've got a big burly kid who picks on another smaller kid horribly. The smaller kid gets bullied awfully until he teaches himself self-defense and successfully hits back against the bully, backing him into a corner. Their fight is ongoing and the smaller kid is winning tremendously, but suddenly he decides he could use some help and enlists the help of the most popular kid in school, a tall muscular guy who excels at wrestling and basketball. This kid puts an arm around him and tells the bully, this guy's under my protection now. You mess with him any longer, you'll have me to answer to. It's like, okay, thanks for the help, but you seem to be doing just fine on your own. And in hindsight, this friendly alliance with Rome was the start of a long downward slope that ends with General Pompey bringing Judea under Roman domination and the destruction of the Second Temple many years later. So when reading this chapter, a part of me is screaming, don't do it, don't rely on anyone else. In any case, we are certainly in no position to judge the decisions of Yehudah Maccabee, who was not a prophet and did not know the relationship between Israel and Rome and the dependency that would follow in later years. So that brings us to the end of chapter 8. And as the situation stands, Judea now has a powerful new ally. But Demetrius has heard about the crushing defeat of General Nicanor in chapter 7, and despite the new treaty with Rome, Demetrius is quick to take big steps to avenge his losses. After the events of the next chapter, the Maccabean revolt will not be the same again.